Welcome to Talk Dizzy to Me, the show that brings you a comprehensive look into the complex field of dizziness. Now here are your hosts, vestibular physical therapist, Dr. Abby Ross and Dr. Danielle Tolman. Welcome back to another episode of Talk Dizzy to Me. I'm Dr. Danielle Tolman, a vestibular physical therapist, and as always, joined by my co-host, Dr. Abby Ross, a vestibular physical therapist and a neuroclinical specialist. And today, I am so excited that we have Dr. Jennifer Christie on today to talk about vestibular with a pediatric population. Welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. I am so excited for today. Why don't you give our, our audience a little bit of a background on yourself and what you know brought you to here? Thanks so much for having me. I love your podcast and I'm just so thankful for what y'all do um, for the clinical community. So my name is Jennifer Christie and I was born a pediatric physical therapist. I worked with all, kids with all kinds of diagnoses, movement related problems um, for about eight years and then decided that I wanted to get more into the research part of it. And so I happened to be reading the pediatric physical therapy journal and saw an ad for uh, that Dr. Rosemary Ryan had gotten a grant to look at kids with this vestibular problem in Miami. So who wouldn't want to go do a PhD in Miami, Florida, right? So, you know, the only thing I really knew about the vestibular system was that if you spin someone, you'll see their eyes beat. That's about it. This was in... Um, this was like 1999 or so before it became big. And, um, you know, I just knew that I wanted to get my PhD so I could be on faculty somewhere and um, I wanted to work with children. And so it seemed perfect. So I applied and got accepted, packed my little Mustang, sold my townhouse, moved down to the big city, Miami from Louisiana. I was living in South Louisiana at the time. That's where I'm from. And um, just uh, Rosemary Ryan just opened this huge world for me in the, the tiny little inner ear and how profound it is on how you feel and how you move. And as I started learning more about it and about its connections throughout the brain, I just started thinking about all these other kids that I had worked with. So our population um, that we worked with were children with severe to profound sensory neural hearing loss. And the reason that we worked with that population is that um, these kids tend to not have other neurological problems. And so the only thing that, you know, related to their vestibular system, not all of them have vestibular hypofunction, but a large percentage of them do. Um, we think 60 to 75% of them do have some form of vestibular hypofunction, whether it's um, lack of canal function or otolith function. And so we wanted to be able to study a population that, okay, the only thing going on here is hypofunction and can we, you know, help them to develop better and, and what does their development look like and what does their postural control look like? So Rose was really a pioneer in this area and, you know, just, just really did some fantastic work. Um, so moved down to Miami. She taught me everything about the vestibular system, got hooked up with the Susan Herdman and Courtney Hall, Neil Shepard, Rick Lynn Daniel, the whole group um, for the Emory course. And um, we did some amazing studies in Miami. So um, I, you know, I can talk to you a little bit about those studies. I don't want to oh, ramble here. Okay. Ramble away. Okay. Okay. So, um, 
So the first thing that we we needed to do was to establish that, hey, you know, these kids really do not only have hypofunction, but it's affecting their development and it's affecting their gaze stability, just like it does adults who lose their vestibular function. So the difference in these kids who are born with vestibular hypofunction and an adult who acquires a unilateral or a bilateral hypofunction is that that adult had vestibular function for their whole life before they lost it, right? And so, you know, they're, they're, your brain develops differently. Your postural control system develops differently if you're born with vestibular function versus if you're born without it. And so these kids never had it. They never knew what it was like to be able to balance on foam with their eyes closed or to be able to see clearly with their head moving moving. So the kids don't really complain. So what do the physicians and the educators and everyone working with them think? Oh, they're fine. They don't have any problems, right? Even though um, a lot of them don't participate in sports because they, you know, fall all the time. Um, They historically have had trouble reading and it was always attributed to a language problem rather than, you know, their ability to see the words, which I think, you know, there is some of that as well. And so um, what Rose's kind of mission was, was to test these kids using gold standard vestibular function tests, um, which at the time, this was in early 2000, um, the only way to test these kids was to do the rotary chair. Okay, and so as we know, the rotary chair just tests the horizontal semicircular canal and it only tested at um, you know medium frequencies. You could also do calorics on these kids, which they don't love it because you're putting water in their ears or air in their ears. So at this time, the VEMP was not really a thing. Um, we could only test the horizontal canal. So we had a, um, a lab at Miami and I sat in the rotary chair with all these kids and we spun them and saw that, you know, a lot of them had no nystagmus, no dizziness. They had no function at all. And we found a large group of these children who were attending school at a, um, a school for children with deafness. And so these a lot, some of them had cochlear implants. This was sort of before the big cochlear implant movement. Um, so some of them had them had the cochlear implant, some of them didn't. But uh, the study, which was funded by the NIH and also the Foundation for PT Research, Rose got the very first pediatric grant um, from that from the uh, Foundation for PT Research. Um, and what we did was we took um, a study by Krebs. It's a for bilateral hypofunction, you know, kind of a a study that's that's fairly old now. I think it was 1992 that that one was published. And we looked at those, that intervention that they did in that study, and we made it fun for kids. So I got to make all these fun games and make these little pathways that were narrow and bigger and bigger, and we made it standardized. We included um, exercises where we were moving their head. Now, we weren't specifically doing VOR times one viewing Um, or any of those exercises, but we were putting them in a net swing and we were swinging them around and making them identify um, pictures and, you know, find different things with their eyes. We were doing balance exercises. We, it was extremely standardized. We did eye-hand coordination exercises. 
um, a lot of uh, things that would help to strengthen their proximal muscles as well. And I got to go to the school and play with kids all the time. So it was really, really fun because I've always wanted to be a kindergarten teacher. And this was like a way that I got to kind of do that a little bit and get my PhD. Um, so I kind of went ahead of myself before all this happened. <clears throat> what we did was we um, did the the rotary chair to determine, hey, they don't have a VOR reflex, right? They don't have a vestibular ocular reflex. But you know what? Who cares about that if they're functioning well? So we also did our functional tests, which at that time were the Peabody Developmental Motor Scales test, which is a it's a standardized test for children to determine um, their motor function and found that the kids with hypofunction were very, very delayed. And that delay was progressive as they got older. So as we did repeated testing over time, we saw that they did not catch up on their own, that they got worse. And so these kids are in need of intervention. Also, um, we had an SOT machine, and so we did the SOT. And the kids with hypofunction all fell of course, on conditions five and six. Um, but we also found some interesting things about their use of somatosensory and vision for postural control. And that was that these kids, you know, who were born with no vestibular function, they had a hard time using vision and using the somatosensory system for postural control. You know, and that's something that you don't see in the adult patients who lose their function because you know, they had this vestibular function their whole life. And so their brain was able to kind of use that as they were developing vision and somatosensory for postural control. Right. But these kids um, had decreased, you know, poor use of those two systems as well. So we found kind of this interdependence between the three systems and that if you don't have vestibular function during development, that your use of vision in conditions that require vision and use of somatosensory when, you know, the brain really likes to use somatosensory um, after age six, that they also had difficulty with those as well. So that's going to contribute to that poor development. Um, we also, uh, part of my dissertation was to develop the pediatric version of the clinical dynamic visual acuity test. So we got the little, um, the LEA symbols chart for, you know, because we wanted to do this even with kids who didn't maybe know their letters for the regular, um, the regular chart. Um, and so I tested lots of typically developing kids and tested children with hypofunction on the clinical DVA test, we did test retest reliability and found results just like we did for the adults. Hmm. That a cooperative four-year-old can complete this test. Now you do have to have somebody pointing at the letters and, and things like that. Um, but they typically developing children um, with a good vestibular system, they can do within two lines. And then anything greater than two lines was abnormal. Now, our kids with bilateral hypofunction, they were like six lines of difference. And there was no doubt that they could not see with their head moving. The kids with unilateral hypofunction were about three and a half lines of difference. 
So that was kind of interesting. We didn't have a huge in of kids with um, hypofunction for that, but the results were pretty, it, it's a pretty sensitive test um, for hypofunction. And so I did that. And then we had a hypothesis that maybe this um, poor dynamic visual acuity was also affecting their reading ability. So I don't know if you've read the this old study about a physician who all of a sudden got bilateral hypofunction and was saying, you know what, his heart was beating hard enough to require that to read the paper, he would have to like put his face in the headboard of his bed to be able to keep his head still enough. You know, um, I don't know if y'all y'all have seen that, but it's an, an old paper. So we're like, you know what? Yeah, kids don't do this when they're reading, but maybe this is contributing to their reading problem. And so um, as another study in my dissertation, I looked at the um, a test for low vision for adults, the MN read test, and kind of created a, a version of that for kids that could be signed because some of the kids still did sign language or read and looked at that. And we did find it wasn't overwhelming, but the kids with hypofunction, there was some trend toward them needing bigger font to be able to read quickly or to read at their normal pace. So I think there might be something to that. Um, it makes sense. I mean, absolutely. It, it, there's so much information there that, I mean, I don't know about you, Abby, but I would completely <laughs> not even <laughs> together or overlooked. I mean, I, I look at anybody under 50 coming in for a vestibular evaluation and go, oh, these, are, these guys are young. I wonder what's going on. And I can't imagine working with the pediatric population. One, a couple of the questions I had, you're ticking them right off. You've kind of covered some of the functional outcome measures and some of the testing. What does a, a bedside vestibular test uh, look like for the kiddos, you know, for the pediatric population? Because a lot of it's going to be very different. Like you had mentioned with the DBA, uh, you know, it, it's got it. You've got to use symbols instead of letters or, you know, with, in some cases, like what are some other differences that we might see with working with the pediatric population? Yeah, that's a great question. And the tests are exactly the same that you do for adults, but you have to get the attention of the child. You have to use lots of stickers. You got to get them looking at something. So some of the modifications that we made. Um, so the head impulse test you can absolutely do with any age of child. You can put stickers on your nose, get their attention, use bright colored lights and sounds just to get them looking somewhere as you're turning that head. Um, I've also gotten them to look into a mirror. And so they'll look at a sticker on a mirror and you can turn their head from behind oh, to do okay. it that way, to look for that corrective catch-up saccade. Um, you can, if, if you really want to see, do they have any vestibular function at all, you can sit them in a rotating office chair in their parent's lap, like even if it's a little baby, and you can rotate them. In a 2014 study that I did, I took some of these outcome measures and validated them for children. And one of them we called the Emory Clinical Vestibular Chair Test Modified for Kids. And so we came up with like a protocol for that, that you would um, spin them a full spin every two seconds with a metronome with their eyes closed. And then you would put the goggles on and time the nystagmus. Um, oh. You know, and, and so that if it's, you know, if they have nystagmus that lasts for a certain amount of time, you would say, okay, they have 
vestibular function or they don't. So that's a, a screening test. You do have to be careful with that one because you don't want to put a child in the in the chair that is going to have a super hyperactive vestibular system because we do know that some kids who have these movement problems, kind of these coordination problems, some of them show up with really hyperactive vestibular responses. And so when you spin them, their nystagmus is just going to town and going crazy. I was going to say mom and dad might not like you so much after that. (laughs) Right. I made that mistake one time, you know, the kid was fine when I was spinning him. And then when I stopped, it was just, it it was not fun. So yeah, so you got to be careful with that one. But if you suspect that they don't have vestibular function, you can do that when you go, oh, wow, this kid, you know, needs to be referred for vestibular function testing for sure. Um, the modified CTSIB, if they're old enough to pay attention and can stand still for 30 seconds, you can do that one. And we have cutoff scores for that um, for hypofunctioning kids with sensory neural hearing loss and cerebral palsy. We did a study. This is a totally different population, but my um, my PhD student, Anwar Almuteri, who's from Kuwait, worked with me for a, a few years and we tested kids with CP. Hmm. Um, so I can talk about that in a minute, but back to the bedside test, we also validated the SVV test. Now this one, five, six-year-olds, if they understand the test, it, it, it's good for them. Um, now your kids with hypofunction, unilateral or bilateral, they're going to set it straight. Um, but what we're finding is that the, the bucket test or the SVV test is good, a good indicator of individuals with central vestibular pathway dysfunction. And so they said it kind of the variance between the trials is way off. And so we found that with the concussion population and with the kids with CP. Mm-hmm. But I would say, you know, if you suspect a kid has hypofunction, so if they're born with severe to profound sensory neural hearing loss or they acquire it, um, for whatever reason, um, and if they ha- can had not, so if they had not walked independently by age fifteen months, or if they had not sat independently by age seven months, those are indicators that they may have vestibular hypofunction. So Kristen Janke from Boystown did that study where she looked at different milestones. Of, of children with sensory, now these are only for children with sensory neural hearing loss um, and found those things. So that was kind of interesting given the, the new CDC guidelines, which are, I don't know if you've heard of that, but the CDC came out with these new uh, development guidelines, which are way over what pediatric PTs consider kind of um, typical for I saw a lot of controversy on social media pages (laughs) regarding those new guidelines. Right. Let's say too, I'm a mom. I'm not, but maybe one day. Let's say I'm a mom. My kid has good hearing that I know of. Are there other signs aside from the, the milestones you just suggested, but are there other signs? Maybe my kid is seven, eight, nine, even older. And I'm like, hmm. You know, I never thought about this before, but maybe something is going on with the vestibular system, such as if they're clumsier than I think maybe they should be, or or what other signs might a mom or dad look for? Yeah, that's a great question. So as we know, there's a wide range of clumsy that is normal. And so not every, you know, kid that you would consider clumsy has a vestibular problem. Um, you know, some signs might be, do, 
are they fearful of movement? Do they not like swinging? Do they not like, you know, and, and that doesn't mean that they'll have hypo function, but it might mean that something's going on there. Maybe they're having trouble integrating all that sensory information in there. Um, do they complain of the, the visual world jumping around? Um, uh, do they, so kids with a whole lot of chronic ear infections, so during the chronic ear infections, they showed that these kids um, had really poor use of vestibular for postural control. But then after they got the tubes in, it went back to normal. Um, so after they cleared up the ear infection. Um, now, you know, if a kid has chronic all the time ear infections, that might lead to some more permanent damage. Um, so I would say, yes, the the falling, especially if they fall a lot in conditions that um, have a compliant surface or an unlevel surface, plus their visual surround is, is kind of messed up, like at the beach when the waves are coming in and out and they're walking on sand. Sure. What now about car be, sickness? Do what? Say the Sorry. What about car sickness? Yeah, car sickness is tough. And I, I get calls a lot about that because, you know, the, the babies have to ride backward in the car and that, that one's tough. That one's a tough one. Um, you know, that's more of a, not really necessarily a hypo function problem, but more of a just motion sensitivity kind of thing that you have to habituate. You know, we always talk about habituating it. And so, I don't know if actual habituation exercises work to improve car sickness in these kids, but there are some other strategies that you can use that you would, you know, use on anybody like blocking the vision, um, trying to, to get them to, to attend to something that's, that's still using um, different oils, you know, like peppermint scents mm -hmm. and things like that. But that's, that's a tough one for kids or adults. Um, now, we had talked a lot about um, hypofunction, unilateral and bilateral, and we had briefly touched on poten uh, potential central issues that you know these kiddos might be experiencing. What are some of those um, diagnoses or conditions that we might see in this patient population um, that in regards to central dys uh, dysfunction? Yeah, well, one that um, a lot of uh, everyone might see in their practice is the concussion population. Mm -hmm. And one thing that we did here at UAB was there was always, you know, all these papers coming out, oh, people, you know, kids with concussion have vestibular problems, but what was the outcome measure that they use? It was the VOMS, which does not measure peripheral vestibular function. And so we took a lot of kids with concussion, we put them in the rotary chair, we did SVV, we did their VOR testing, and we were just on a kind of a fishing expedition. We did VIMPs, C-VIMPs, O-VIMPs. And what we found was that most of these kids, I'm not saying all of them, but most of them have good vestibular reflexes. So their inner ears are working well. The connection between the eighth cranial nerve and the nuclei and at least the neck and the brain are, are at least the, you know, for, for the VIMP and also for the VOR is working well. So they didn't really have a VOR problem, but what they did, what we did find was the SVV variance problem. So they didn't always set it, the line 
consistently to one way, but they would set it here or here or here. And so the variance was off. Um, and then we also found a little bit of a problem with VOR cancellation in the lab. Now, it, it's not something that you would be able to appreciate with the clinical test because it wasn't, the gain wasn't high enough, but there was an increased gain of the, the VOR cancellation. So we found those things. And then they did have trouble with the um, SOT conditions five and six. Um, we didn't test DVA on them, but, you know, kind of the take home was they've got these reflexes. There's just some something that's keeping the pathways kind of, you know, it's kind of a concussion is kind of like a train wreck, right? Like mm -hmm. it's, you know, there's all these, these wrecks and so it might be keeping pathways from getting from one place to another, but we didn't study those central pathways. We just know that they have the reflexes there. However, they still have the symptoms, the dizziness, the headache, the fogginess, and their SVV is off and their balance is, is off. Um, so that population may benefit from vestibular rehab, not to increase the gain of the VOR because they've got it, but to help them you know, with functional things. And then also we found similar um, findings in children with cerebral palsy, which was interesting. So they had great vestibular reflexes and vestibular spinal reflexes, vestibular ocular reflexes, but their SVV was off, their use of vestibular for postural control was off, and their dynamic visual acuity was also off because we did do the clinical DVA in those kids. Interesting. So, so the take home is, I think, um, you know, if you think about kids with CP, they've got this vestibular system that works but they don't move very well, depending on the level of CP, right? So um, cerebral palsy, we look at what's called gross motor function classification system levels. So a level one, they walk independently. So they probably get on the swing and run around and do flips and play sports and things, right? A level two though, has a little bit more difficulty moving. A level three needs an assistive device to go long distance. Um, a level four, needs help and needs a, a wheelchair, but they kind of can move within their environment and a level five is fully dependent. Okay. So think about that level three, four, five mm -hmm. and how much effort it takes just to walk from, you know, their bedroom to the kitchen or, you know, they have to be wheeled in. They never do what normal typically developing kids do. They don't flip. They don't stimulate those hair cells, you know? And so, um, and so, of course, they're going to have trouble using it because they they rarely use it. So I think um, that's another thing that PTs can do. Pediatric PTs could do would be to, hey, let's really pay attention to this and get you moving. Let's put you upside down and let's make you do these kind of VOR exercises where you're having to identify things while we're turning your head. Um, so I, I would love to do a study with kids with CP who have poor DVA to see, hey, can we improve their DVA? And does that improve their, you know, function or reading or schoolwork and all that? So really cool stuff. Uh, what about some other diagnoses that we might see from a vestibular standpoint in the pediatric po population, such as perhaps BPPV? Yes. So it used to be thought that kids didn't get BPPV. But recently there have been some more reports. So these come in the form of case reports and, and things like that, that kids, of course they can get BPPV. Now, 
they're not going to get it as often as older people because their, you know, their utricular macula is still very sticky and hopefully those, you know, crystals stay stuck in there. But, um, you know, if there's trauma, if they ha are involved in a car accident, if they, um, you know, if they are have a concussion that kind of hit the temporal bone and the, and the crystals fall loose, that they can get BPPV and you treat it just like you would an adult um, with BPPV. So they can get that. Um, also, children can't get migraines. And so... Yeah, so there's um, there's this pediatric um, sort of in the migraine family called benign paroxysmal vertigo of childhood, and that is something that it tends to affect children, and it causes sort of BPBV-ish kinds of symptoms. So they get vertigo that lasts for a short period of time, not necessarily with changes in head position. <clears throat> And then it goes away and it's usually kind of connected to um, usually the parent had migraine also. And so it's sort of a genetic thing. And there's several different forms of kind of pediatric migraine variants. And so, you know, obviously these children have a good vestibular system, but it's that kind of central migraine um, thing that can manifest itself with poor balance and um, poor VOR during the episode and just feeling bad. You know, we talk about in adult populations, how many people go undiagnosed or they don't correlate their symptoms with vestibular dysfunction because they might've never even heard of their vestibular system. I would imagine, I mean, this is just a guess, but I would imagine that that number of undiagnosed patients or people is even higher in the pediatric population, given that they might not realize that something is wrong because they never had normal function to begin with. That is exactly right. And so these children, they don't complain typically unless they lost vestibular function. So in our cochlear implant population, some of those some of the children who get cochlear implants now, what they're doing right now is they're implanting children very early, like six months of age. But what people are realizing is that, um, so the cochlear implant is a miracle, miracle device, and it helps children to be able to hear, to be able to talk. Um, it's, it's a miracle device. But if you think about it, what they're doing is they're, they're putting the, the electrodes into the cochlea, and in a certain percentage of these children, they will experience, let's say that they only implant the right side, they will experience um, a hypofunction right after. Now, there's also been some data that shows that when they turn the cochlear implant on, some kids get better vestibular, like it stimulates the hair cells. And so I think bottom line is it's a good idea to test the babies and the toddlers who are getting this, a cochlear implants, test them before and after they get it. So it's not that you're not going to give them the implant. Of course you are. You want them to be able to hear um, or the parent does and the child does. But okay, now that we know that the child has hypofunction, let's get them into therapy so that we can work on this so that they will have the best chance of being able to, to um, develop and to function because the intervention did work. The intervention that we did in Miami, all those fun games and stuff, what it did was it helped to halt 
the um, progressive delay and they got better and they got better use of their vision and better use of their somatosensory system because we taught them substitution strategies. Um, so now I really want to do a study where I'm looking at kids with hypofunction to see if the uh, times one viewing exercise, if done kind of according to the clinical practice guideline recommendation of dose, which is a lot, um, if that would improve their DVA. And maybe even in the kids with some vestibular function, improve the gain of their VOR through adaptation or um, whatever mechanism. So, um, so that's one thing that I would like to do. And is there anything you're currently working on in research that you talk about? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so if you, I don't know if people were at CSM and at the CPG, um, they did a, a, a session on the, the clinical practice guideline. And I was on the author group there. And I think they included me because they wanted me to write the statement for children. And so I, we did, you know, I wrote a statement for children, but it was really based upon Rose's study because there hasn't been a study on vestibular rehab where the researchers did vestibular function tests and then kind of did a high level study. So I sort of said, all right, it's my mission over the next five years. I'm going to do get some studies out there to show that this works. Um, and so what I what I really want to do is to get some we have, so Rose and I um, we do a sort of a version of the vestibular competency course, but for kids. And we do that when there's not a pandemic in November in Jacksonville. And so we've had a lot of people come to the course and we've had a lot of uh, main children's hospitals like CHOP and CCHMC and Rady Children's in San Diego. And I know there's more um, who have vestibular lab and there's a great relationship between their audiologists and between the physical therapy team. And so what I really want to do is to get some of those clinicians together and sort of do a grassroots, like let's do all the common outcome measures. Let's do a similar protocol and just write up a really good case series. And then I would also love to do a randomized trial um, looking at a home-based uh, vestibular program. Because we know that they come in, you give them the exercises, they should go home and do them, you know. But with children, you're not going to be able to give them a sticky note with a letter on it and say, OK, turn your head for, you know, until it's just about to, you got to make it more fun than that. And so I'll show you kind of my um, idea for making VOR training fun if you want to share the yeah. video. So what I did was I um, we took pictures of lots of children's books. Can you see that on the screen there, guys? No, not sure. yet. Not yet. Let's see. I don't know why it's not popping up. Would you mind just resharing that? I'm going to take yeah. it off. Yeah, maybe uh, I can click on it. Okay. Yeah, I'll do that. Okay. But um, so what I did was um, took pictures of a bunch of children's books at different level, um, different levels of reading, you know, and let's see, share screen. Share screen. So I guess we'll share this and I'll pull up the video. Um, can you all see that? Yes. There we yes. go. Okay. Yep. 
Okay, so I'll just kind of pull. So anyway, what I want everybody in the audience to do right now, if you're watching, and I know some people are listening. So we have um, the Green Eggs and Ham book going. Let's see if we can get it to a page. There we go. Okay, so turn your head right, left, right, left. It says, I am Sam. So the parent can be turning the head at whatever speed you prescribe. And how easy would it be to get two minutes in like this, right? Oh, so, you know, you can develop the protocol, you know, and, and give them the exercises to do at home every day. I like so, it. So creative. Yeah. One thing that's always been a little um, intimidating is, to me, you know, working with kids is to be creative enough because you really have to come up with a whole bunch of stuff in order to get done what you need to get done. Right. Yeah. So, um, so I, we, we made a whole bunch of those books and, you know, it's still very, it's sort of high tech, but not really, you know, you don't have to have a rate sensor. It's no, you know, nothing you have to buy. As long as they have a computer, they can download the books and it's really just getting them to buy into, okay, you need to do this every single day for 10. And I, I'm proposing 10 minutes. And I know for chronic, you know, bilaterals, we say 20, but I'm just like, that's a little too much commitment for a parent. So the protocol that I, I've been using and that I want to use is 10 minutes of VOR training in pitch and yaw. And then we'll do some other things related to balance. So balance with head turns and, and have some exercises, you know, static balance and dynamic balance exercises. And, um, you know, just looking to see, does this improve dynamic visual acuity using the computerized version? Because children, we, we've been doing the computerized DVA with kids as young as seven, and they're, they're doing fine with it. They're able to tell which way the E is going because they haven't made a pediatric version of that one yet. Um, so I'd love to get just some pediatric clinicians together who have access to VHIT and um, VEMP, you know, because you do need to be able to, to say, quantify their vestibular function and then go, OK, let's do DVA. Let's do the CAT-SIB or SOT. Let's do the FGA. So um, Kristen Janke in Boys Town, her group and I got together and we um, videotaped a lot of kids doing the FGA because no one's done it on kids yet. And we did some kids with hypofunction. And so we're working on that publication now. So there will be um, the FGA modified for children soon because right. it's just too easy for them. So well, another question related to intervention. So we've talked about some modifications like using bright lights, stickers, the book to do VOR. Are there any other like classic exercises or um, tips or modifications you use during treatment? Yes. So, um, so let's say that you're going to have an adult tandem walk, you know, so they're just going to tandem walk. So a child is not going to think that that's very much fun. And so what you can do is, um, get a balance beam, get like a, you know, a piece of board to put on the floor and have them walk on the balance beam. You can also um, get um, painters, plastic, you know, the, the plastic that covers the floor whenever you're going to paint your house. And you can draw pathways at various kind of, you know, a narrow pathway or a little bit wider pathway. You can make them curvy and say, OK, we're going to make this a game. You're going to take, you know, pick up the 
the fish and you're going to walk on this pathway and throw it in the, the ocean or whatever. So you just have to make games. You have to make everything a game. So any, any exercise that you do with an adult, you can make a game. You could do obstacle courses. Mm-hmm. We found that the kids with bilateral hypofunction did have um, low, it was like this low kind of postural set, this low tone in their proximal muscles. And so doing things like, you know, with an adult, you might work on perturbations where you're pushing on them boring for a kid. So what do you do? Get them on a little scooter board and pull the scooter board and kind of, you know, okay, don't fall off, you know, and if they fall, it's, you know, it's not going to hurt them or anything um, because they're sitting on the scooter board. So thinking of of ways to get perturbations like that, eye-hand coordination is also important for these kids. And so just giving them targets to throw the beanbag at um, and getting them just to kind of do that motor planning jumping over things so you can do a lot with kids teaching them how to skip teach them how to run you know um no it sounds amazing it sounds like a lot of fun and it's a good way to spend the majority of your day in my opinion and it it sounds absolutely great yeah the the trick though to me is you know you're only gonna see them for once a week you know you shouldn't you're probably not going to get approved to see them every day unless you're going to their school or something like that um the trick is getting the parent, you know, getting them to to have because these parents are so busy, you know, everybody's so busy with homework, with their other kids, with just life in general. So finding a way to work this into their daily life, which that's we have that with all of our patients. You know, you want to do that. So getting them to commit, OK, for three months, you know, we're really going to commit to every day, you know, make sure that they do something that's going to, you know, either improve their VOR, improve their balance and kind of do it intensely. Um, so I think that the home program and how we set that up is, is extremely important. Well, it sounds like, I mean, all of this is extremely important, especially when it comes to the development of children. You know, the fact mm-hmm. that you put so much, you and Rose have put so much work into identifying, you know, vestibular issues in the, the patient population and then how to quantify and test, which seems, you know, almost impossible with working with the little ones and then being able to turn that into a treatment protocol. is like you're setting this up as a great default for our, our patient population and getting them the help that they need, which is really, really important. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So I think it's, it's definitely becoming more known. I think a lot of the audio, a lot of the um, otolaryngologists and the people doing the cochlear implant surgeries, they're realizing that this is um, important. And so I think there's more referrals for vestibular testing and then as a result of that, they'll send them, you know, to get treated. But we just have to keep working together. You know, I think the team of audiology, the surgeon, the audiologist, the PT, the OT, and the also the optometrist is, is important. Um, you know, we have our optometry team over here is thinking that VOR training may improve amblyopia, you know. And I'm like, hmm, maybe so, you know. Um, I worked with a kid who had bilateral hypofunction from CMV, cytomegalovirus. And he, um, you know, one of the fun things that his family told me was that after the, you know, we, we we worked with him. He had a really good family that would work with him every day and said that before the intervention, he had amblyopia. Um, The optometrist identified that. But also, whenever he would read, 
he was in, I think, um, fourth or fifth grade. He was an older kid. Um, he would have to use a ruler to, on every line of text when he would read a book. Hmm. And then they noticed that after the intervention, after they had worked on that, that he didn't have to use um, he didn't have to use a ruler anymore. He could keep his place on the page and the amblyopia got better. But I don't know. You know, we don't know if that was from the VOR training or not, but it was just kind of interesting because I don't think that's ever been used. They use vision therapy, but I don't think they ever used VOR training for that. So really, really cool stuff. I'm so intrigued by the pediatric world now. I haven't worked with many pediatric patients, but now I want to. You've sold me. Good. And it's so fun. Like, seriously, if you're a vestibular specialist, you have all the tools in your toolbox to work with kids. They are no, you know, they, they, they have the same, the same inner ear that your adults have. It's the same size. It's just that their outer body is a little bit bigger. <laughs> I mean, now, are you guys, are you guys having the course this November for down in Jacksonville are you guys planning on that or what's that I think so yeah I think Rose um, I emailed her the other because I keep getting you know people wanting to know about it and she's working on it she's working on getting that set up so hopefully we will well we should put that in the show notes as soon as that's something that becomes available we'll make sure we link people to that so they can find it if they're watching the episode is there anything else you want our listeners to know about or point them to before we let you go because we know you're you're a busy lady (laughs) Um, no, just, you know, contact me if you have any questions or, you know, if you're in that group of, um, very rare group of uh, clinicians who you're seeing kids with cochlear implants, um, or since you're no hearing loss and you want to kind of be included in the group that, you know, we're going to do this little kind of grassroots study. Let me know, email me, maybe you can put my email in there as well. I'm fine with that. Absolutely. We absolutely will. Thank you so much for your time. And thank you so much for joining us. Uh, We really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. This was fun. Thank you, Dr. Christy. And thank you, our audience. As always, we'll see you next time. If you're interested in finding us on social media or the web, You can visit www.vestibular.today for more resources, including testing, treatment, and educational videos, blogs, continuing education classes, and resources, including clinic equipment recommendations, suggested tests, and BPMBB treatment charts. Search Vestibular Today and Balancing Act Rehab on all social media platforms, including Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. Also, be sure to check out Balancing Act Rehab at www.balancingactrehab.com, especially if you think you would benefit from vestibular therapy. We are your girls. The information on this podcast is not intended to replace the care provided by your qualified health professional or to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have heard on Talk Dizzy to Me. Please contact us at Balancing Act Rehab if you think you could benefit from vestibular therapy.